Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. All right, friends, welcome back to the show today. We have joining us from Los Angeles, California, Dr. Monica Coleman. How are you, friend? I'm doing great. How are you? Good. And you just returned off book tour, you just told me. Yes. So where have you been? Oh, I just got back from Detroit and Ann Arbor, Michigan, which Ann Arbor mm-hmm. is my hometown. Nice. Um, before that, I was in Washington, D.C., before that in Atlanta, before that... I was in Oakland, California, and I okay. launched uh, here in Orange County at my church in Irvine. What's, what church is that in Irvine? Uh, Christ Our Redeemer AME. Nice. And then I did okay, a couple so, events in L.A. in the middle. <laughs> okay, so if you had to rank Atlanta, I've lived in Atlanta, mm-hmm. uh, Ann Arbor, uh, I've never mm-hmm. been there, uh, D.C., my mom's from D.C., I spent time there, mm-hmm. Oakland, eh, I lived in the Bay Area for summer. So like, I've been to a few of those places. If you had to rank, which was your favorite stop? Which is your favorite town um, to visit? Well, I love Atlanta. I used to live there. And okay. so I like Atlanta. The food in Oakland was amazing because I'm vegan. And so I really enjoyed eating in oh. Oakland. And Now, hold on, hold on. You know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Texan. You can't lead off with vegan because, <laughs> you know, Texans, we struggle with that. So. I, I, yeah, I had a very long postdoc summer there where I ate nearly nothing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what were you in in Texas? In Dallas, yeah. Oh yeah, you you were struggling. I was like find... brisket. Like, what is that? Oh my god! No, you don't do... <laughs> yeah. there was no brisket in uh, Ann Arbor or in DC. No, 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 none of that. Yeah, none of that. So I liked no. it. every city was great for different reasons. So my family's okay. from DC. That was great. Um, so it's all been wonderful. Good, good. And now this is your sixth book. It is. That's like that's getting up there. That's a lot of books. It does. It sounds cool, but uh, I just realized it just means I'm getting older. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, you don't seem old, so you're you're doing good. Thanks. Now, okay. So you uh, you did your undergrad in uh, Boston at Harvard, right. or Bo- Boston area. Mm-hmm. You did your masters in Nashville at Vanderbilt, right? And then Emory, is that where you did your doctoral work? No, I actually did my doctoral work at Claremont Graduate University. Okay, which is where you teach now? I teach at Claremont School of Theology. They are very close, like across the street, but they're different institutions. Okay. Well, it's kind of the same name. So can I count Yeah, yeah. well, you know, no, they all, all the schools out there have the word Claremont in them. It's very confusing, <laughs> but I, they're different schools. They're different? They are. So how long have you been in L.A.? Uh, I have been here. I took my position at Claremont School of Theology in 2008. That's a few years. That counts. Yeah, yeah. That's good. Okay. So uh, before we jump into this book, which is Bipolar Faith, mm-hmm. um, you and some of your other books talk about a womanist theology. Now, some of my listeners are going to go, okay, what's the difference in a womanist theology and feminist theology? <laughs> why, why, do we, why do we need to create different language for, for these different terms? Could you give them like a brief soundbite as to what's the difference? They're like first cousins, right? <laughs> or okay. I would say, or siblings. Um, they're both liberation theologies, right, that are mm-hmm. interested in the important role of experience in shaping how we understand God. They both care deeply about women's experiences. Um, womanist theology in particular is interested in the experiences of women of color, and usually African-American women or women of African descent, and the particularities when you intersect race and class and gender and all other types of identifiers as well. Um, 
And so those, and so some of our sources are different. They'll be particularly African American sources or particularly African sources in doing theology. But I think ultimately our goals are the same: to center women's experiences and to offer um, theologies that are liberative for people. Okay, so uh, you might not know this, but we are talking via FaceTime, so you can see me. Right. Uh, I am a white male. Okay. Uh, did you I figure that out? I, 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 the... I thought maybe yes. Yeah, yeah. It's the hair that gave it away, wasn't it? <laughs> Okay, so help. Okay, so if there, it, let's assume there are other white male pastors mm-hmm. who are listening right now who've never heard of womanist theology, and they're trying to figure out why do I need to learn about this. Um, obviously, uh, anytime you get outside of your own perspective, you learn something about God differently. But obviously, you learn something about your congregation. You learn about uh, the fellow people who are creating the image of God, just like you. What are some other things that that a white male pastor um, is missing out if they don't know anything about a womanist theology? Well, I think it's, you know, I think right now in today's political climate, it's just so important to care about perspectives other than our own. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I think it's so important to want to know how do other people who are different from me experience God? How do they experience their lives? Um, when everyone's making some kind of commentary on what happens amongst um, really charged issues like immigration and police violence, it's important to try to kind of be as informed as possible, I think, of how we are similar in our love of God, right? And yeah. also how, we're, how we bring our particular experiences to that love of God. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think being aware of the particularities, I think, is something that's very uh, helpful for us to all be at the table together and, and to learn about each other. And you have, uh, in this new book, Bipolar Faith, you have this um, section in which you talk about being a high school student and you had this rally and you wanted to bring in a very, uh, a speaker that you knew would create some sort of <laughs> conflict. And you have a quote that um, you wanted to, we wanted to assert that it bothered us when classmates said, I don't think about your blackness. I mean, you could be purple or polka dot for all I care. And the statement that I, as I heard, I thought, well, they're trying, like it's intended to be nice on the surface, but underneath it didn't come across that well to you and your fellow classmates as a, as a high school student, maybe continues to be that way today. Uh, I've heard many uh, friends who would say that about their blackness, that they don't want it to be seen and seen as to do that. Um, As a high school student, what was that feeling going on for you when you, when you would hear that? Well, you know, there's a kind of, the political side is that colorblindness is its own kind of racism, right? Um, We didn't have that language. We just knew that when you say, oh, I want to be colorblind, that you're not really seeing me because part of who I am is my race and my culture and those experiences. Um, So that was a big part of it. I think we also just didn't like boy bands at the end of the day, right? We're like, oh, you know, they're biting off of new edition. So that was a very big part of our teenage conversation. (laughs) And <laughs> which is understandable, but okay, let explain this to me. I've never understood this, and you're a doctor, so you, you will understand this. How come New Edition and then the other R&B groups that follow them, whether it's Boyzman or Jodeci or whoever, um, they're considered what kind of group? They call them we call you know, them, I guess, R&B groups, yeah, or, R&B groups. That's right. it, like Jodeci is an R&B group, uh, and Sync is what. A boy band. A boy band, right. How it was actually come... New Kids in the Block was actually who our particular Venom was at. That was before NSYNC. So Which is understandable. So, yeah. yeah, you're coming. But how come the white groups are called boy bands and the black groups are called R&B groups? What, right. What's yeah. wrong with the... Why can't there be a white 
R&B group. That's what I want to know. Because R&B group sounds... a black sounds... boy band. No, I mean, you don't... Were, they were bo- but they were boys. I mean, these were... They but were you kids. don't want to be a boy we band. You don't want to well, be a boy band. You do if you want a screaming teenage girls buying your <laughs> cassettes. <laughs> you're buying cassettes back then. Yeah. Um, right? You know, but I mean, it, it kind of came down to the fact that we wanted people to see our culture and not yeah. ignore it. And that that was part of our experience. And um, that was the kind of recognition we wanted. And we also dealt with racism from teachers and other people in the school, um, just because it's part of wider society. And we wanted to resist that. Yeah. Okay. This is a complete tangent. We got on the the subject of boy bands. And now um, I was thinking of after Jesse Williams' speech at the BET Awards uh, Mm -hmm. weeks, months ago, however far and then Justin Timberlake, like the paragon of people who can survive being a boy band, responded <laughs> trying to make a statement of solidarity, and it was completely thrown under the rug because he made that same sort of statement of saying, you know, we're all one. And to mm-hmm. some, it came across as though he was washing away the particularities of other people in their experience. Did you see that? But I didn't see it, but I know it's common, right? I mean, yeah. I think people who, um, it's very similar to the All Lives Matter response. Mm-hmm. I think the intent is usually good to say, hey, you know, we, we all have experiences and we all want to be one people. We have similarities and I care. And the response to those who don't like that is that, but you're missing the point is that right now some lives are more valuable than others yeah. to certain segments of the population. So we don't have to say that our lives matter if your lives are being treated like they matter, right? Or yeah. um, similarly, well, we're not all one because look at what's actually happening. Yeah. And so I think those are some of the tensions that are there. Yeah, yeah. No, that's good. Okay, uh, one of the things uh, about your book is that you have some very poignant images, uh, especially at the very beginning, that mm-hmm. I don't know how any reader can just like glance at that and go, um, okay, I'm just going to move on the rest of my day. Uh, you start off with a very... Um, I don't know. It's an overwhelming story about your great grandfather committing suicide mm-hmm. and having assistance from kids. I mean, his mm-hmm. his kids. Right. Um, and and that's how you start the book. I mean, you start off pretty. It's a it's a it's a pretty bleak story to begin the book with. Why did you feel like that? Obviously, it's a an attention grabber for uh, for telling a story. Obviously, that's powerful. But why did you feel on a on a deeper level that that's how you wanted to enter into the story about which really, I mean, it's an autobiography. It's your story. Yeah. Um, I used it as a, it is, it does get your attention, I think. Um, mm-hmm. But it's also this story that in many ways framed my family and my life, but I didn't know what the story was about. And in many ways, it's kind of what I was trying to get at. You know, I was always living with this condition, but I didn't know that and didn't always have a language for it. So my family said, and this is, I don't think we're giving it away, right? That my yeah. Great grandfather died of grief when he had hung himself with assistance from his children, who are my great uncles. And um, I thought you could just get sad and die, kind of like the Grinch does, you know, when his heart gets small. That's what I thought happens. Your heart just gets small and you die. Um, I didn't realize, wow, we're talking about something far more um, weighty here. And people knew it. They didn't hide it. They just didn't talk about it like that. And I also use that story to kind of begin to talk about how complicated um, mental health challenges are, mm-hmm. that it's this complex overlay of poverty and race and culture and experiences and desperation and family and, you know, all these different things. Yeah. When, when I'm reading through your story, uh, your great-grandfather, obviously, uh, as we just mentioned, commits suicide, um, 
your granddad uh, had issues with alcohol. Um, your dad, uh, in the book, I, I believe he's described as a mean drunk. And, and I'm hearing all these stories, and I'm thinking, does this person have mental health issues, or is this just like really like terrible circumstances that would lead anyone into like a really dark way of living because this is just not a uh, a bright and sunny story. And I'm assuming some hear stories about people with mental health issues and go, oh, well, you're just in a bad circumstance. That's not mental health issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously in the book, we'll get to it where that's obviously not the case. But how, how do you differentiate between like, as you're saying before, there is overlay of race and history mm-hmm. and family along with mental health. How do you do you need to separate those? Do you bring them all together? Is all, is that all one story? How do you deal with those? Yeah. Well, to me, that's the thing is you can't separate them, right? I mean, mm. it's we're like philosophers and theologians. We like to draw these clear lines of causality. Yeah. Um, this is where this comes from. Um, but you can't, right? It's kind of like saying, it's well, who would be okay after slavery, yeah. after sharecropping, after war? Um, no one's okay. And how do people manage to live and love and have families, they treat themselves, possibly. They deal with pain in whatever ways they know how or can get access to. Um, so for me, a lot of it was also saying there's, there are no clear causes. There's no one to blame. Everyone did the best they could with what they had. It's actually more miraculous that people survived and turned out anywhere near okay, <laughs> mm-hmm. given the same circumstances. But what we now know about brain chemistry is Trauma and fear changes your brain. Hunger changes your brain. Yeah. Um, so are these chemical? Well, yes, possibly. But where does that come from? Mm-hmm. Right? Is it genetic? Is it environmental? Are they experiences? Yes, 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 yes. Right? Mm-hmm. Is kind of what I'm trying to say. And there, there are no great protectors from this. It's, you just have to kind of keep working with it. Yeah, you just said that no one's to blame for this. Uh, I would assume that would be a very natural default mode for many of us to say, oh, these issues I have are because of you. Um, did you ever find yourself at a place where you were blaming, um, you know, one of the people in the story who uh, makes some really uh, unfortunate choices as to the source of maybe some of your mental health issues? Oh, of course I did at the time. <laughs> um you know, I, I blame my father um, for the kind of fear I grew up in as a child. I blame, I talk about the story of uh, being raped, and I blame the person who raped me. And clearly, there are concrete actions they took that were not okay and that were hurtful. Um, and part of that was I also thought very much that my condition was a response to tr- these traumatic events, which it was, but the depth of it, also had to do with something more that was happening with me, right? Yeah. That I experienced these at a deeper depressive level than others might have. Um, in writing the book for me, though, and in growing and maturity and therapy, um, gives helps us to see people as full human beings, right? As more full human beings. So there aren't villains. There aren't heroes. Um, even the time, you know, you break up, you hate the boyfriend, right? <laughs> you yeah. hate the person you broke up with. And you're like, eh, you know, there's stuff I did. Yeah. Um, you know, very similarly, I don't take fault with being um, a survivor of rape or fault with the household I grew up in as a child. I had no choice. But I do understand that these people are not running around trying to be malicious, right? That people were working with insufficient resources often to do what the task at hand was. They were doing their best, and their best fell short. 
that's a, a wonderful attitude to have. I don't know how you could say someone who raped you isn't the villain and they're not to blame for something. Is Was that a conscientious choice that you had to get to that place or was that just the only way for you to move forward is to get to a place where you don't see them that way? Well, again, I you know, for me it was like, yes, this is something he did and he made this conscious choice not to respect my wishes, not to respect my consent. Um, but to say that there's more to him than being Monica's rapist, right? That he's also somebody's son, somebody's brother, um, somebody's friend. He was a person I once chose to have, you know, loving feelings for. So I can't reduce him to this one act. Well, I can, but I chose not to. Um, and for me, that's what forgiveness looked like. Yeah. That was meant that, yeah, you still did this. It's not okay. I have to live with the repercussions of it much more than you do, which mm -hmm. sucks. Yeah. But um, if I walk around hating you, it's only going to hurt me. He's fine. He's not walking around hating me, probably. Yeah. Um, you know, so I have to kind of sit down with God and do that work so that I'm not walking around harboring hatred. And it didn't mean I had to, like, you know, really sit down and have conversation. Then we're going to be friends again. No, we're not friends. But it yeah. did mean that I was able to see that he is larger than that one act. You said you had to do some work. Uh, if someone else is going through a process, maybe it's not the exact same sort of uh, experience, mm -hmm. but they have to do the work of forgiving someone. What are things that helped you do the work to 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 forgive this person and to move forward? Um, I think one thing is I had good therapy. It's <laughs> so, a wonderful thing. Yeah, I yeah. did. And I had free therapy, right? As a grad student, I have any money, you know? <laughs> so um, thank you all the people who work in crisis centers, right? Yeah. Um, so I had therapy. Uh, that made a big difference. The other thing was I didn't rush it. I didn't feel like I had to forgive immediately. Um, so I didn't. I got to it when I got to it, which was years later. Um, and so that made a big difference. I think I also was rejecting what I thought were bad ideas about forgiveness, yeah. like forgive and forget. I was like, well, we're not going to forget. That's not going to happen. Um, and, you know, I, so I had to kind of redefine for myself, and that was kind of theological work. Yeah. Of what does forgiveness mean? What does it look like? Um, as a Christian, I can't just be like, I'm not going to forgive. That's hard for me to, to wrestle with in my faith. Mm -hmm. Um, but I also had to say, well, what does forgiveness look like in this kind of a context? Yeah, you, you said you had to get rid of uh, some bad ways of understanding forgiveness. For example, forgive and forget. What right. is so bad about forgive and forget? Um, well, it's not biblical, for one. Yeah. <laughs> not that the Bible is everything, but it's not even there. It's a good it's place to start, yeah. 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 Um, and forgetting isn't healthy, right? It's Our memories are important to remind us of what we've experienced and what we don't want to experience again sometimes or the good things we do want to experience again. And so I don't want to erase the memory, pretend something didn't happen, particularly if it's about the level of safety I may be in. Mm -hmm. um, so that's a big part. I was like, no, I'm not going to forget. It's not healthy to forget. Um, but forgiving and forgetting don't need to go together. Just like forgiveness and reconciliation are often put together. Mm -hmm. yeah. And they're two different things. You can forgive people who you choose not to remain in a relationship with. Yes. And so once, you know, when I really began to parse that out and say, well, forgiveness is something and reconciliation is something else. Mm -hmm. And it was healthy for me to forgive. But if I might be putting myself in danger or re-traumatization, then I'm not going to want to maintain relationship with certain people. Exactly. I think that's such a good uh, 
binary way of understanding forgiveness and reconciliation because forgiveness is something like that that I can choose to do on my own. Reconciliation, right. that's two people have to come to the table on that one. And, uh, and if they're not willing to do the work, then there's no reconciliation that takes place. So, right. okay, let's, um, let's jump back to earlier in your life. Um, mm-hmm. You talk about the uh, tense home life that you had. Uh, mom, dad had a tense relationship. Dad and you had a, a tense relationship. And you, you talk about how you, um, you had a set, I guess being around other family, it was much more positive being in DC. Like when you made the trip over to your family yeah. there, you're smiling, just mentioning DC. <laughs> uh, yes. so I wish people could see that and they go, Oh yeah, she really was happy in DC. She, DC is great. <laughs> um, my grandparents live in DC. When I drove to DC yeah. as a kid, it was great. Good times. Right. Yeah. yeah. Chesapeake Bay Seafood House. I'd always get happy there. Uh, Crab cakes, man. Yeah, no yeah. kidding. No <laughs> kidding. Anyway, um, but you had this tension. And you, here's one line from the book. You say, I, I knew how to live in duality. I knew how to perform and smile while being sad. I lived with both great lows and great highs, and I learned how to hide. Now, mm-hmm. as, as okay, obviously the book is bipolar faith. You talk about this book is the kind of book that you wish existed when you were uh, finding out that you were, is a diagnosis bipolar two? Is that how you say it? Yes. Okay. Um, and so you're, you're writing this and then you hear these, these extremes of highs and lows. Do you see that working in as an early part of your life of having to, to live in both the highs and the lows? Do you see that connected in that, that section on I think so. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of what I was shooting for. Right. And yet I also think it's this experience that many people of color have, right? You live these two kinds of lives, one where you're around mainly people of color and one where you're in a wider world where you're minority. I think it's common for anyone who has um, lived through um, a domestic violence experience as a child, if you're raised in that or um, in a home of an alcoholic, right, where you kind of show one thing on the outside yeah. and you live something different. Yeah. You know, I, I think there's some, a lot of commonalities to the experience. Um, and so, but it also, in some ways, gave me the skill set to both hide living with bipolar from myself and from doctors mm-hmm. and to manage it. Okay. In what way manage it? Um, well, because I learned, I knew how I knew how to navigate it, right? How to yeah. live within highs and lows, and still go to school, still go to work, mm-hmm. um, still write books, still do what I had to do. Yeah. Um, you know, so I kind of had figured out some systems or some coping techniques. Yeah, and I, and I think I learned them at a very early age. And obviously, you're functioning at a high level. You were going to a, you know special academic program that obviously got you into Harvard. So you're you're doing well. Um, y- you said earlier that it was. Uh, this way of life was very common for people of color growing up where you had to learn how to live two different lives. Explain to someone who's never grown up as a person of Mm -hmm. color. Well, I think, um, you know, W.D. Du Bois calls it double consciousness, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And we have all types of language for it as academics. Um, You know, it's, I think it's very much for some people like who have large families, right? It's like you have this life in your family where you feel very comfortable and you are who you are. And then you have this wider world, mm-hmm. right? Um, and I think that only we're taught this way as people of color, as African-Americans, that, you know, this is who we are and this is what we're comfortable doing. This is how our hair works, how these, all these very different historical and tiny things happen. Uh, and then you go into a wider world that does not necessarily love you or care about you or value you, right? Um, and this is the lesson I get to teach my four-year-old daughter this year, which is heartbreaking, right? Mm. That, 
she doesn't think about color at all. She's, you know, pink, red, blue, right? That's her idea of color. Yeah. Um, and I have to put her into a world where someone's going to say to her on the playground, you can't do that because you're a girl. And she'll have to know, wait, yes, I can, because she doesn't have any concept of that. Yeah. Right? Um, and so, you know, we're taught, I, we, this is what we do. We teach our kids early on kind of how to still be okay when people don't think you should be able to do things that you can do. Yeah. And so there's, that, there's a kind of two-ness in that, right, where you don't give them your complete self because you don't trust them not to hurt you. Right? Mm. You give them the best version of yourself so you're not going to be negatively judged. Hmm. Okay. So when you're talking to your four-year-old, uh, what's your four? Do you mind telling me your four-year-old's name? Her name is Harlem. Harlem. Okay. So when you're talking, my four-year-old is named Adeline. Almost four. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I have three daughters, and so my mm-hmm. oldest is a uh, huge fan of Ruby Bridges. She just okay. loves Ruby Bridges. Mm-hmm. Um, Martin Luther King Jr. is someone she's a big fan of. Uh, she'll. She'll ask, hey, let me watch YouTube videos of Dr. King. And so she watches these things. And so we have to explain, like, the context for why um, Dr. King's words were so powerful and why it's such an important figure. Um, as a white person, it's, it's the experience is, hey, um, people who look different from us have gotten the short, sh- the short end of the stick on this. And at the expense uh, of their suffering, we've been benefited from it um it and so as i'm telling the story to my kid i'm saying you know we're the ones who've who've done the wrong and we need to Mm -hmm. to work past that when you're telling your four-year-old uh what are you telling her as she's learning these stories and learning her history and learning about her culture what what are you telling her Uh, well i have six months left i think before i have to six months (laughs) but yeah that's what i'm giving myself (laughs) she knows our culture she doesn't associate it with race, right? So she knows Kwanzaa and she knows the sound of Malcolm X's voice and James Baldwin and jazz and Coltrane. Like she knows all this cultural content. We surrounded her with this. She knows reggae and Bob Marley and dreadlocks, right? Uh-huh. She knows all these <laughs> things. But she doesn't think this is black. This is what African Americans know or do, or she doesn't know the historical context that birthed them. Mm. Right. And so that's the part that I'll have to share with her. And uh, I remember I, I was an early reader because my mother was a reading teacher. Mm-hmm. So when I went to first grade and I was five, I knew about George Washington Carver and Mary McLeod Bethune. And I knew they were black scientists, like George Washington Carver was a black scientist who did a lot with peanuts. Mm-hmm. And I knew that Mary McLeod Bethune was a teacher and that people didn't want other black kids to learn. So she had to work really hard for that. And so my daughter doesn't even have the concept that people don't want little black kids to learn. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they didn't, you know, historically. And so that's what I have to tell her. So I've begun by talking about color a little bit more. Like there's light brown, there's dark brown. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so even, she doesn't even think about light red or dark red, right? So even just giving, reminding her their nuances in color yeah. um, is even just a very beginning point in that many people of various colors call themselves black. That's going to pretty much blow her mind right there, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> because she thinks in Crayola colors. Um, not necessarily in the way we think about race. And it's not, race isn't sensical, right? It's not rational. It's, um, so having to try to explain to her a system that we all know doesn't really make sense is not strictly based on what the color of your skin looks like, right? And then to tell her about 
the various histories and probably, you know, starting with, she knows a lot about Egypt. She knows a lot about African animals. <laughs> so we could talk about Africa. Thank you, Diego. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, we can start with Africa and we'll move forward. Yeah. Okay. Race is not rational. I've, I've never heard that, and it makes so much sense. I don't know why I haven't heard that. That's um, uh, oh, that's fascinating. Okay, let, let's go back to when you were a little bit older than your daughter. Um, you were, uh, I guess, a teenager, and the piano was a big part of your life. And you talked yeah. about music being this middle place. And so there's yeah. tension between your mom and your dad. Eventually they split up. There's tension with you and your dad. Uh, there's a line in the book that you say, I started believing in God the day that mom told me she was leaving daddy, um, which is yeah. typically not today that most people start believing in God. <laughs> so it speaks to that sort of tension. But how how is music the solace for you, mm-hmm. and what did it mean for, for you to have this, or for music to be a middle place? Um, yeah, no, actually, I have, I've now had the same piano in my house that I oh, really? with, that my daughter yeah, plays with, which is great. Oh, and the funny thing is that the piano was a gift from my father, <laughs> and um, my, but he didn't play. My mother mm-hmm. played, and so I grew up playing, and um, I started taking learning when I was four or five, five, mm-hmm. I think. Um, and so it did become this place where no one bothered me. Mm-hmm. Uh, which was really nice. It's kind of a wrong. You said no one bothered just as your phone was going off. That is kind of funny. Tommy, right, right there. Okay, but right. music was... No, yeah, it was... Just, Go ahead. Yeah, it was... A, I mean, so in one place, practicing was this acceptable thing to do. But I could just get lost in the music, yeah. right? And if you know this in the book, um, there's almost a soundtrack to the book, right? I mentioned music in almost every section. So you have this kind of 80s, 90s soundtrack. Mm-hmm. Um, happening, and I actually put the music on my website. If you go to bipolarfaith.com, you can YouTube or Spotify um, the music in there, both the religious music and kind of the you know '90s R&B hip hop that I listen. Which to. category does SWV fall into? Is that the religious or non? They would be the non-religious. This okay, non-religious just checking. R&B, technically New Jack Swing. Actually. Okay, <laughs> I love New Jack Swing. Um, and then, and Not then to be confused with New Jack with City, which had a very popular soundtrack as well. Right, but the, the, the music from that soundtrack was all called New Jack Swing. A certain, it was a certain sound by certain mm-hmm. producers. Um, but if you notice, then the music drops out at a certain point. You don't have much music in the book. And those are some of the most difficult parts of my life. And then the music comes back in. Okay, that's fascinating. And so, why, why did you <laughs> feel like the music dropped out? Um, you know, I didn't write it that way intentionally. It was my intent to have music throughout every part of it. And then I realized, as I looked back at it and was doing some final edits, wow, there's no music here. Because there wasn't. There wasn't much of a sound there for me. These were very long and hard and empty places. Um, And so it seemed appropriate that the music wouldn't be there until I began to have life again. And then the music changes, you'll know, right? It's a drum beat. It's funk. (laughs) Um, You know, they're different. The the religious music is different. Okay, that is... uh... That is, uh, that's a little sneak. Peek. That's but that's fast. <laughs> like there's that I I didn't get it, of course because I'm not that smart. But there's no music. There's no mm-hmm. sound in the times that's darkest. Right. That's really that's really interesting. So do you think it's because there isn't music that was expressing the way you felt during the darkest times, or is just music like mm-hmm. the source of life for you? And for there to be no life, there's no music. Is it, what do you think it is? Well, there, there is music, but it, like I said, it changes, yeah. right? So when it used to be Christian music or gospel R&B, it turns into Sweet Honey in the Rock or jazz mm-hmm. or um, funk, right? 
or just drum beats without lyrics. You know, it changes because I changed and my faith changes. Yeah. Right? So that changes too. Okay, so let's talk about your um, faith changing, or at least your faith calling you uh, to be a preacher. And okay, so this is, so you had a sermon that you wanted to tell. Um, I feel like I'm, I'm not ruining the book by telling any of these stories. Uh, I feel, I I feel like so. I'm kind of hamstrung here because we're like, I'm talking about a book, but it's, it's your story, so you don't want to give stuff away. And like, I've got this obsessive thing. Like, I don't even want to watch a trailer for a movie. If I'm going to watch, I'm going to watch it. I just need to, so <laughs> whatever. So that's kind of ruining my ability to do a good interview here. But people know I'm a minister. So okay, yeah, yeah they, they had to so. figure that out. Yeah. And so your call narrative, like your call story is different. Uh, I never had like this tear felt, hey, I've got a sermon I've got to tell moment, which maybe that's why you're a better preacher than me. Who knows? <laughs> I don't know. But you have, you, you have the sermon you want to tell and you have this sermon inside of you. And so you tell someone you have to get it out, but it's not the first sermon that you preach. I know, right? <laughs> it's not the first sermon. Right. Now you say that ministers typically preach to themselves in their first sermons. Where did... Yes. If not every okay, that's that's where I was going. I was like, is it not every sermon? Come on now. What when did you first come across that insight? Oh, um, I don't know. Like, have you thought that for a long time? Is it? I think I've thought it for a long time. Yeah. You know, I mean, I've been doing. I was nineteen, mm-hmm. right? So I've been doing this for over twenty years. Uh, just giving all the age away, but you can, the age is given away in the book anyway. We'll just um, bleep that out and say you're twenty nine. So people don't. Know. Yeah, that sounds great. Twenty nine. Yeah. Twenty nine. And um, so I've been preaching for a while and I, you know, didn't want to do it like everyone else. Right? I had other plans for my life, things that I thought were far more glamorous and lucrative mm-hmm. than the preaching profession. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, um, yet I decided, well, you know, when you know what God wants you to do and don't do it, things tend not to go yeah. well. So let's let's try this route. Mm-hmm. Um and, you know, I didn't think when I was writing my first sermon, oh, I'm preaching to myself. I was like, I'm trying to let them know I'm called to preach, right? <laughs> I mean, it's kind of a, te- it's a little bit of a test, right? They call it a trial sermon in many huh. traditions. You know, like, we'll let you know after you're done if we think you're called to preach. I'm um, really glad so I didn't have I was... that because I for sure know what they would have said. No. Yeah, I was nervous and I didn't have models, not many models. I didn't know how to do it. So I just wanted to get through yeah. it, right? Um, but looking back on it, right, because I had the cassette tapes. Oh, right, no, tapes. no. <laughs> you still have those? I did. Oh, I listened to them. I was writing those oh. sections. Yes, uh, mine and my friends, um, my other friends for, for sermons. And, um, you know, and saying, like, why did I choose this to preach? This was not what I had been thinking about. What's going I, on? I can't. So I just tried to, you know, psychoanalyze myself a little yeah, bit. Yeah, <laughs> I can't listen to my sermons from, like, five years ago. I've. And I started when I was, I was preaching when I was 19 and it terrifies me that someone has tapes of those out there. So the fact that you (laughs) kept maybe yours were just better than mine. So no, no, not quality. Just trying to make sure I understood what Uh I was saying. (laughs) Okay. You talked about, uh, this is either first or your second sermon. You talked about you were dealing with the fear of being safe and there's the assumption that was that your first one, right? Yeah, that yeah. that you assumed if you're in God's will, then you're always going to be safe, which makes a lot of sense for a 19 year old to say that because I would have said that when I was 19. Um, mm-hmm. And so here's a section from the book. You say, "Part of me believes that I will find a safe place by being a good Christian," and then you go on to say, "And part of me knows that it's all a lie." Did you right. think you knew that as a 19 year old, or is this your like reflection of it afterwards? <laughs> 
Um, it's mainly my reflection, but I, I had a hint of this, right? By the time I was 19, I had been to South Africa. I had seen the slow end of apartheid. I knew that there were many people who loved God and who were unsafe, just going to school, crossing the street. Um, so I, I did in some way know, right, that you could have a great deep love of God and not be safe. Uh, and of course, I attributed them to political powers because um, that was clearly what was happening there. Um, so there was a part of me that knew that you could be faithful and not be safe. And then there was this part of me that really hoped, of course, yeah. <laughs> that that um, as you we try to do God's capital W will, yeah. right? Um, this was, you know, very good evangelical, yeah. Monica. Um, if I fit myself into the capital W will, found it and got in it, that I would be protected and be safe. And, you know, I wouldn't. It wouldn't just have that. I don't have that theology now, of mm-hmm. course. Yeah, my my biggest hang-up was just look at the Jewish people. Like it hasn't worked out too good for them to always be safe, and they're you know God's chosen people. <laughs> I'm not even like the first pick. So what do I think that I'm going to always get the the best seat in the house? Um, yeah, yeah. So there's this tension of you know you you want to do God's will, you want to be safe, but that's not how life always works. And you connect it to the fact that you know your parents lived through you know Jim Crow laws, and obviously when you see you know, y- your family kept the the noose that your great grandfather hung himself with in the garage for mm-hmm. like fifteen years. Yeah, thirty, fifteen, thirty, thirty, L- long like, time. All of those numbers are too high. Like I don't care how many years. I know. That is just that's crazy. Um, but I think also it was a craving for safety. I think that's what the sermon was really saying. That's what I was craving. Yeah. Um, you know, and that's. You know, it makes sense given yeah. everything. I probably still crave it in a way, right, for myself or my family. Who doesn't want to be? Yeah, there? and like you said, like often we're working our stuff out, especially younger in our preaching. We're mm-hmm. trying to create right. a worldview and a theology that gives us the kind of God that we want to have, right? Right, which is why you should go to <laughs> seminary so that you can learn. Yeah, so you don't do that. <laughs> Some other options. Uh, yeah, I did. I mean, this was before uh, I had gone to Divinity School. So I, you know, you just kind of know what you've yeah, heard. Yeah, and right? you're doing the best you can. Yeah, that makes sense. Because the old line is still true that, you know, in the beginning, God created us in God's image. And ever since then, we've returned the favor and created God into our image, right? <laughs> so, yeah. Okay, uh, let, let's uh, let's say this. So, so you write the book because you're hoping... Um, because you, this is the book that you wanted to have when you first were diagnosed with bi- being bipolar too. Um, what do you right. think the problem is for most of our churches when it comes to dealing with mental health? Why is it that this book isn't out there? Why isn't this something that our churches are more comfortable to talk about? Uh, well, there's always the how hard it is to get a book made, right? <laughs> I mean, it's hard to get a movie made, but it's not that easy to get a book yeah, made either. Yeah. So there's yeah. that. Um, no, that is, I mean, and there's, there's also a stigma, right? Um, I was, when I did a book signing recently, somebody asked me, not from the audience, but one-on-one, like, you know, what is the fallout? I'm like, yeah, there's fallout people. Um, you know, there are people who do say, well, you know, she's always been crazy, right? Or people in my family who did not like any portrayal that's less than rosy. Yeah, of course. Right? Um, and I'm like, well, truth hurts, um, you know, so... But there, there is fallout, and you have. I had to be willing to take that risk. 
right? To be willing to say, I can, I'll roll with negative things with, you know, what, um, there are parts of the academy that are not affirming, of course, parts of, um, the Christ, of Christianity and Christian churches that would demonize, right, me and uh, uh, ostracize me, so to say, right, and isolate me um, and say something's wrong with me rather than that, wow, we should do a better job of reaching out to people who are hurting in yeah. our midst. So I don't think that churches run around trying to be mm -hmm. hurtful, right? <laughs> That's not what people do. Or how can we make people feel less than? But we're either not aware or not paying attention or haven't really thought in deeply about what are the implications of what we say and how might somebody take yeah, that. Yeah, that makes sense. I think from my experience as a pastor, I, I feel like most people are doing the best they can. They want to help. Mm -hmm. uh, but a lot of us don't have the tools in our tool bag to do mm -hmm. anything to actually help someone with mental health issues. And right, and yet we hear it all, yeah, don't we? <laughs> yeah. And I'm sure... You, <sighs> These get said too much as well. You just need to pray more. And if you, you trusted God more and you had more faith, and all of a sudden these things go right. away. But surprisingly, no one's really doing that if you get a cancer diagnosis. They don't say the same thing about that. So, right. Exactly. So, if, okay, if you're consulting with a church leader and they, right. well, of I course, do. and you are one, um, yeah. but they're, they're listening to this mm -hmm. thing and, and they have just had someone come up to them and say, hey, um, I've just been diagnosed, I'm bipolar, I'm going to get treatment, um, but I wanted to share this in my church, in my Christian community. Um, what's the right response? What, what do they do in that situation that would be the greatest gesture of extending the love and grace of God to that person? Well, thanking them for having the courage and vulnerability to share it, number one, to say, you know, and I hope you know that we will still love you as a congregation, that God still loves you. We're going to do our best to embody God's love for you. I'd love to hear more about your journey. If I can pray with you in the midst of this, walk with you in the midst of this, it would be mm -hmm. my honor. So there's no like, hey, this is the way to fix it. This is the solution to get rid of your problem. It sounds... Well, if the person's already <laughs> going to therapy, you're already going to get help. Like, if it ain't broke, exactly. right, fix it. Um, but, you know, just like if someone has cancer, you don't meet their oncologist or tell them not to get chemo or whatever. You say, I'll pray with you. And if you need me to go with you or pray with you or meet you at the hospital, that's what you do. It's the yeah. same thing. My dad's a psychologist. And growing up with that being my father, early on, it was instilled in me that if if someone comes up to me as a preacher and says, hey, I, wanna, I have this issue that I want to deal with, I know that if it's mm -hmm. more than like one or two talks I'm having with them, I need to refer them. Like mm -hmm. I need, to, hey, go talk to someone right. who actually has training in this. Why do you mm -hmm. think that that is so difficult for many pastors to do the old referral move to say, hey, go talk to a to a counselor, a psychologist, a psychiatrist, a trained professional in the mental health world instead of let me give you some biblical counseling. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll give I guess the compassionate view and the critical view. <laughs> The critical view is, you know, a lot of people who go into helping professions have savior complexes and, you know, think that we can somehow be the conduit to everything that ails somebody. Um, and that's the lowest view of it. I think a lot of times I know when I was um, in more full time church ministry, people tell you things you didn't think even happened in real life. No. right? <laughs> and you have to go, yes. And inside you're going, oh, my God. No. Um, and. So I think that a lot of times we just say what we've heard, right? We, um, as clergy, like, 
we we do want to think that prayer will solve things, prayer will fix things, prayer changes things. I mean, we have a million songs about this, yeah. right? Um, <laughs> try to give people biblical wisdom, all of which is fine and wonderful, but not everyone is trained to refer. Um, and so I say the best thing that most clergy can do is to not just have a phone number, but have relationships with uh, mental health professionals. So that when you're referring someone, you can say, this person is my friend. I know them. I trust them. They will take good care of you. Let me call them right now. That's different than handing yeah, someone a card. That's good. And the second best thing they can do is pick up a copy of this new book, Bipolar Faith, by one Monica Coleman. So uh, that's my second suggestion. Refer and then read your book. So, And yeah. that'll solve all the problems <laughs> in the world. Hey, thank you. Well, at least we'll give you some theological Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Well, thank you so much for talking about this. Thank you for helping me understand the difference in R&B groups and boy bands and many other things. So thanks for the time. It's, it's, uh, it's nice getting to know you. Mm. Thank you. It's been a great conversation. Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned.